Hello and welcome to Carbon Matters, a podcast journey in which we seek to explore and inform on topics related to carbon removal and the crucial role it could play in tackling climate change. Hello everyone, we are looking forward to finding out more about Bex and invite Mathilde Farjardi to give a bit of background on herself and how she got into this field. So Mathilde, hello and please Tell us more about what is bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. Hi, hi Patricia and hi everyone. Thank you for, for having me today. Uh, so yes, I'm a research associate um, uh, in energy technology at the University of Cambridge. And I came to the topic of bioenergy with carbon capture and storage in 2015 uh, when I started my PhD on, on BEX um, specifically at Imperial College. So that's how I got into it. and. And since then, I've been working a lot on different aspects of the topic. So in terms of what is BEX, um, so BEX is really the combination of two different technologies. Uh, on the one side, you have bioenergy, which refers to the conversion of biomass. So for example, a plant material to some form of energy, for example, a liquid biofuel or electricity or hydrogen. And on the other side, you have CCS, which refers to the capturing CO2 from point sources transporting it and storing it underground in deep geological formations. And so what happens in the back system is that as biomass grows, it captures CO2 from the atmosphere through photosynthesis. And when it's converted to energy, typically all or a fraction of that CO2 will be emitted back into the atmosphere. But instead of doing that with the back system, the CO2 is captured and sequestered by the CCS system which theoretically results in a net carbon removal or what we also call carbon drawdown from the atmosphere. Okay, great to have this overview, Mathilde. And I'd be curious to know more of why are we talking so much about BEX nowadays? Why is it so heavily featured in pathways to two degrees and to 1.5, net zero and beyond, uh, even in the, the carbon dioxide removal primer that was recently launched? Like, why are we talking so much about it nowadays? Yes, it's, it's a good question. So, I mean, really the, the use of bioenergy has been, you know, ubiquitous throughout history. We've been using bioenergy since, since thousands of years. Um, CCS on the other side is much more recent, but was still has been trialed and tested since the 70s in the fossil industry. But for BEX, it's only at the end of the 90s that several scientists began referring to BEX or bio-CCS as a way to get carbon removal. And that's when it began to be used in what we call integrated assessment models, or also called IEMs, which are basically complex models that combine energy, economy, and climate system into a single model, and that explore scenarios on future CO2 emissions and what we can do to mitigate them. Um, so the wider scientific community was aware of, of you know, afforestation, so planting trees or reforestation, uh, as a way to naturally sequester CO2, but they really began to grasp the concept of technology-based carbon remo- removal in the early 2010s. And, and later on, climate reports started uh, showing that technology-based carbon removal was quite important to get to two degree and even indispensable to get to 1.5 degree warming. So today, these models also have included more carbon removal methods, but at the time it was only BEX. And you have to understand that BEX is particularly attractive in the model because it provides both carbon removal, but also um, 
low carbon energy. So in the form of biofuel or jet fuel for planes or bioelectricity, biohydrogen for heat and transport. And these are all super valuable in decreasing emissions in multiple sectors. And so the fact that BEX provide both removal and energy really makes it a key asset for, um, for emissions mitigation. And so, so the, the fact that BEX was so heavily featured in these models actually uh, started sparking some, some controversy. Um, so questions were raised about, about these levels. So uh, questions around, well, why, why are we doing carbon removal in the future? Because that would mean that maybe we're delaying mitigating emissions today. Uh, there were also questions around the fact that we are re relying so much on such an untried technology, uh, but also questions about bioenergy itself. So uh, there were concerns around the environmental and economic impacts of such large deployment of bioenergy. It's really interesting to hear, you know, how heavily featured it is in everyone's um, reports and estimations of what we need in the future. But considering these kind of as untried and things like that, how much of it is actually deployed at the moment and, and whereabouts in the world? Yes, uh, it, 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 it's, uh, it's one of the key concerns, even though the technology is actually known. I mean, we've been, again, we've been doing bioenergy a lot. There's a, a large amount of biomass plants, you know, about 50 gigawatt of bioelectricity plants in the world. So that's, that's a large amount. We've also been doing CCS since the 70s in the fossil industry. So we know both aspects of the technology. However, we um, there is indeed very little BEX deployment in the world. So the first BEX pilot plant started operating in 2017 uh, in Illinois, in the US. And it's actually a bioethanol plant. So it, it converts uh, corn into ethanol and fuel um, and sequestered that CO2 and, and put, it, put it underground in a reservoir underneath the plant. And so that plant is actually quite large scale. It captures 1 million tons of CO2 per year. So it's been demonstrating that we can do biofuel and carbon capture and storage at scale for a long time now. In terms of bioelectricity with CCS, uh, in early 2019, the Drax thermal plant in the UK, which used to be one of the biggest coal plants, converted a large portion of its capacity to biomass and started capturing CO2 uh, with a with a small pilot so they are now capturing one ton of co2 a day which is obviously quite small but it's all part of the proof of concept um, there are also other sort of pilots which are starting to pop up so in the in japan there's also a biomass plant which uh, started capturing 500 ton of co2 a day uh, you get some other bex projects in, in planning in the us so all of these projects together means that roughly we're capturing you know a bit more than one million ton of co2 a year, which is still, you know, orders of magnitude below the billion ton scale that is envisaged in models. But at least we've, we've started to prove the concept um, across the world. Yeah, definitely. I agree. This is certainly a, a very low value that we're capturing out of, of CO2 via BEX nowadays. But yeah, definitely a lot of potential here. Um, and focusing on the potential now, tell us, Mathilde, what are the, the main hurdles of BEX deployment uh, that you see nowadays? Um, there are several, obviously, hurdles. Otherwise, we might have seen more of BEX in the world. Uh, the first hurdle is, is that of the sustainability of the biomass, which was, a, which was one of the key controversy that was raised when we were seeing so much biomass and BEX in these models. I mean, we obviously need international governance and agreement around the carbon accounting first of a BEX value chain. I mean, there, there can be a lot of 
um, uh, different steps in a BEX value chain. You know, a BEX value chain can be composed of different actors living in different countries. For example, you could have a forest manager in the US selling forestry residues to UK plant. Uh, and maybe uh, in some countries, the CO2 storage part could also happen in a different country with a different actor. So this, this really gives you a multi-polar, multi-country BEX value chain and carbon accounting is therefore rendered quite difficult. So there's a need for international governments and agreement around that. Um, beyond carbon emissions, there's also you know, quite a lot of concerns around the sustainability of bioenergy itself. And we can come back to that later. But so there's a need for a certification of sustainable biomass, not only in terms of carbon, but also environmental indicators such as land use, biodiversity, et cetera. So these frameworks, uh, you get, for example, the, uh, the Renewable Energy Directive in Europe. Uh, the, these are being reviewed and improved. So I think the new one in Europe will be out in 2021. So it's definitely in the works. But concerns around the sustainability of biomass also directly um, impacts the second hurdle, which is that of social acceptability of BECS, or what we also call the social license to operate. Um, and, and without that social license, it makes it very difficult for an operator to, to deploy a BEX system. So for example, in 2020, the Netherlands declared that given the scarcity of sustainable biomass, biomass shouldn't be used to produce heat or power, for which you get already, you already have low carbon alternatives that exist. But that instead, they should be used in sector in which they are really valuable, such as chemicals, agriculture, construction. Um, so, so that shows you that really from one day to another, a BEX project could lose support from, from the government in terms of regulation. Uh, there's also some regions with a stronger position to carbon capture and storage, like in Germany. And BEX really crystallizes both positions uh, because it combines both technologies. So in that context, what is needed is really stakeholder engagement and communication to really communicate that even with stringent mitigation, even if we make all of the efforts possible for mitigation, carbon removal will still be required on top of, of mitigation. So it's not removal instead of mitigation, it's really in addition to. And that's a point that needs to be conveyed to the population. And so in order to prepare for a future with potentially some level of carbon removal, we need to start preparing the technologies that can deliver a carbon removal. Now I understand that if biomass supply is limited in a given region, I agree that the uh, I agree with the idea that it should be used to maximize its mitigation potential, like the Netherlands is doing. It does not make sense to deploy BECs everywhere, but rather to deploy it in regions which make the most sense. And and of course, financing is the last hurdle. Um, I mean, these projects are highly capital intensive. And without the promise of a revenue stream in the form of a carbon credit for removal, for example, there'll be no BECS project coming out. Uh, I mean, of course, a BECS project also produces energy and that's a, a potential revenue. But already the bioenergy plants, for example, they need incentives like any renewable source because they are more expensive than fossil. So these are obviously not enough, uh, especially if subsidies for renewable energy generation are being pulled off like in the Netherlands. For example, in a region like in the UK, without a revenue for removal, you know, you, you would need about 100 pounds per ton of CO2, let's call it 100 pounds, uh, for a back system to be financially viable. So, so without, without that revenue stream, there cannot be any 
large-scale back system out there. And, and, and obviously, an obvious last hurdle is the absence of a CCS infrastructure. Uh, I mean, you need a CCS infrastructure for uh, a back system to exist. So um, clustering of plants, like they are doing in the UK with the identification of different industrial clusters to lower the infrastructure cost of CCS is, is quite key and, and will be needed to, to get to BECS later on. Could you pick up on the sustainability question of BECS? You mentioned that earlier, but I know there's a lot of worry about whether it would compete with our food supply and things like that. So could you just explain a bit about that? No, definitely. I think that that's one of the largest questions around BECS. And, and it's really the question of bioenergy. So the same questions that we ask around BEX are the ones that we already ask about bioenergy. So in, for bioenergy, you can have very unsustainable bioenergy projects. Uh, for example, pro projects that deforest primary forests, projects that cause biodiversity loss and soil degradation, uh, steal land from population, all, all kinds of, of obviously very undesirable projects. Equally, you can have a bioenergy project which is uh, sustainable. So that would be a project that relies on agricultural or forestry residues, which are sustainably collected um, on waste as well. I mean, you have a lot of waste to energy plants uh, that could be retrofitted with CCS. Um, you can also grow more resilient grass-like plants, such as miscanthus, uh, on degraded land that could bring you some relatively high yield and, and can be used for bioenergy application. So, I mean, there are options for, for bioenergy to be sustainable. It's all about uh, sustainably manage, managing your entire chain from production to uh, transport to, to your plant. Um, so basically, if you want to have a sustainable bioenergy project, you want to first use residues or waste, or uh, if you're going to use a bioenergy crop, you want to use resilient crops, which can get to high yield on low quality land. So you can, have, so you can leave the prime land for food. You want to limit road transport, which is very polluting. For example, shipping across the Atlantic would be less emitting than trucking biomass over 300 kilometers. So that gives you the scale of how road transport with trucks can be really bad. So you really want to favor barge or train or, um, or, or at least uh, facilities and production sites close to ports if you're going to import biomass. And you want to be careful about the carbon intensity of the electricity and the fuels that you're, that you're going to use along biomass supply chain, uh, because biomass needs to be transported, but also processed, condensed to in the form of a proper fuel. And all out of that is going to require some form of energy. And so, and so being careful about using low carbon electricity or low carbon fuel for that is also quite key. But, you know, providing all of these uh, boxes are checked, you can have a sustainable BEX project. So it's all about certifying it properly. Yes, certainly a lot of elements to, to cover and try and make sure that it's, you know, sustainable in all the right ways. Are, are there any particularly low hanging fruits or, or easy elements of BEX that, that can be applied sooner or, or work easier? Um, yeah, I mean, there are definitely good places that we could start. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, we're already doing a lot of bioenergy. So it's about 30 exajoule of modern bioenergy being used today. So you have, uh, you know, a third of that is for heat and power. A third of that is, from, is for industrial applications. You get about five exajoule for transport. So if, if already we could apply CCS to some of these processes, we could, you know, capture almost one billion ton of CO2 uh, so I mean, it's still 
much <laughs> less than you know the 40 billion that we emit every year but that that would already be something so the issue with that with uh, retrofitting ccs on existing biomass plants is that most of the biomass plants today are rather low scale uh, which means that the cost of applying ccs is potentially quite high uh, because you need you know, to build a co2 transport and storage infrastructure so you're not going to do that just for th this one plant so that really uh, reassets the importance of clustering the CO2 flows uh, and the creation of CO2 clusters to reduce the cost of CCS. Uh, another option is to retrofit coal plants to biomass plants and, and add CCS. And that's what Drax has done in the UK or the Mikawa power station in Japan has done. And, and that obviously uh, lowers the cost of capital because you already have a facility. But in terms of, of low hanging fruits, I think, yes, starting with uh, with waste and residues to um, improve the overall carbon accounting of the BEX plant. There are also industrial applications which already burn biomass, such as uh, pulp and paper plants. Uh, so retrofitting CCS on these could also help deliver some removal at low cost. So yes, I would say starting by those and then when we get a better uh, handle of it, we can you know, move to larger scale BEX plant that might require more feedstock. Compared to other carbon dioxide removal methods, where does BEX fit in? Is it one of the, the main methods or is it actually one of the smaller ones that we're starting to move on from? Yeah, I think, I think the reason why BEX is seen and one of the main methods is really because along with afforestation, which is planting trees, BEX has always been the most represented technology in the models. But it doesn't not mean that it's the best method. It's just that bioenergy was already there and CCS was already there. So it was sort of the natural combination. But there are obviously a bunch of other carbon dioxide removal methods out there. And I'm sure this podcast series will explore all of the different options. And all the deployment of all of these methods will be uh, limited by resources, I mean, including BECs. So it could be you know, resources that limits these, uh, the deployment or energy requirement or space. So. Um, so some technology will fit better in different places. So it's really about, first, it's really about having a mix of what is best where, but also potentially leveraging potential synergies and complementarities between them. For example, if you could deploy an afforestation project with a bag blend, you could think of, of getting some sustainably harvested wood residues from the afforestation project to a BEX project nearby. Uh, similarly, between biochar, and bags, you could imagine using some biochar in the soil in a bioenergy crop to improve the yields, hence improving uh, bags carbon balance. Uh, but so in, by, by no measure is bags the leading CDR method. It's really a part of a portfolio that we need to explore. And alone, it will not be able to, to get to the level of carbon, carbon dioxide removal that we might need. Well, pretty interesting to see the synergies among the different uh, carbon removal uh, solutions that we have out there and how they relate to BECs. So Mathilde, can you tell us more about what needs to be done in terms of governance? So, so really to accelerate the deployment of BECs uh, in, the, in the regions and projects where it makes more sense, what needs to be done on this, on this side of things? Mm, no, yes. I think, I think governance is one of the key questions because, as I mentioned, most of these BEX projects or some of these BEX projects can be heavily international. Uh, so in terms of governance, first, uh, I mean, we, we have a, you know, a very important need for inter international cooperation. 
first in setting up regional carbon removal targets. We have been setting up regional mitigation targets, but we don't really know what each country should do in terms of carbon removal. So being able to, to have these plans in the, you know, in, in, the, in each country's net zero target, for example, or, or longer term target to 2100 could really help foster the deployment of VEX. Collaboration also in terms of, of exchanging flows of, of biomass, you know, being able to trade biomass between countries, being able to trade CO2 between countries, uh, both physically, but also virtually, being able to, to trade CO2 removal credits uh, between countries could really help also make sure that uh, the CO2 removal projects only uh, get deployed in the regions in a way it makes the most sense. And that maybe countries where it makes less sense would actually pay other countries to do removal on their stands. So that could be, that could be I think, really good to, to help foster sustainable VEX deployment at, at scale but also at the lowest cost. Um, and then finally, as I mentioned earlier, uh, accounting and certification of international VEX value chain is really what uh, is required to make sure that VEX is sustainable. So uh, making sure that we have what we have in Europe, such as the Renewable Energy Directive, that we have that everywhere is really key that, uh, to make sure that VEX is, is deployed sustainably. Yeah, perfect. I can definitely see the, this points very much uh, being uh, key to, to deployment of BEX, uh, especially the, the carbon removal credits. So uh, on the economic side, Mathilde, uh, which can be broad depending on where the project is located, but mm -hmm. what are we talking about here in terms of the, the scale of the costs, uh, mm -hmm. also compared to other carbon removal solutions? Yes, uh, I mean, BEX is, you know, is a is a is, is a big plant uh, in most cases so we're talking about definitely something which is more expensive than uh, afforestation so we are not at towards the lower range of the costs i mean if you're looking at afforestation depending on the countries and uh, on the productivity you'll be looking at costs between you know 20 30 dollar a ton to maybe 80 90 dollar a ton in very extreme cases for backs you're talking about costs between 150 maybe in China or Brazil was the, where the cost of capital is, is lower uh, to maybe 200 250 uh, in countries like the UK uh, I mean this is just from my own estimates uh, you might have you might find other cost values elsewhere I mean ultimately we don't really know what a real project X project would cost um, that's um, that's really the removal cost uh, so the cost of removal if you include life cycle emissions and all the costs of the, of the value chain uh, obviously, as I mentioned, a BEX project also produces energy. So if you take into account that revenue, actually, uh, that really decreases your cost as well. So in the UK, uh, maybe your net cost will be, you know, $120 uh, a ton. So taking into account that revenue from energy uh, drastically reduces the cost. Uh, and that gives you the credit that would be required for a BEX system to be viable. Uh, and, and in certain countries where... Uh, for example, the cost of electricity or the wholesale price of electricity is high, like in Brazil, uh, a back spend could actually be economically viable without credit because the cost could be quite low and the wholesale price of electricity is quite high. So it really depends, as you said, on the region uh, specificities. But overall, we are in the middle range between afforestation and direct air capture, for example, which would be more in the range of you know, 300, 400 for a first plant with potential cost reductions as we go, but for the first plant, we're looking at higher costs than this. 
Yeah, definitely. So, so definitely in the terms of, of costs is really in the middle of the range of the, the solutions. So that's, that's good to know. Well, Mathilde, this has been a very interesting conversation. Uh, we've talked about BEC's importance in the different climate scenarios, its hurdles, uh, the cycle, life cycle analysis, including supply chain relevance to, to, to analyze its sustainability, uh, and really the conditions that we need, uh, that need to be met to, to make this project successful. So as a final question, Mathilde, I would really like to know, uh, what are you doing right now? Can you tell us more about that? <laughs> Yeah, um, so I mean, I'm, I'm still quite involved in the back space uh, since my PhD. So I'm, I'm co-supervising um, two PhD students at Imperial working on, on, on studying other carbon removal methods such as uh, direct air capture, afforestation, and, and see what would be the best co-deployment in different regions of these three different methods. So I think that that has been really good for me to better understand how the other methods work and how BECs compare with them. Um, but actually, my, my new uh, work job at Cambridge is quite different. I look at how we could decolonize the heat sector in the UK, which is quite a big challenge because uh, heavily relying on natural gas. But I do look at BEX a bit because I, I try to see, should we do 100% decarbonization of heat or should we do maybe 80% and leave the last 20% to carbon removal because it's so expensive to get the last 20%. So I do look at these sort of trade-offs between carbon dioxide removal and mitigation in the context of heat in the UK. Okay, great. Great to know that you're still connected to decarbonization and somehow uh, your work that you have uh, been doing over the last years also contributes to, to this work. Well, Mathilde, well, thank you very much for joining us today and help us demystify Bex and its relevance. It was a pleasure to, to have you here, and I'm sure um, everyone listening also appreciated much uh, your knowledge and what you shared with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It was actually great to talk about Bex for a bit. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Carbon Matters, and we look forward to bringing you more insights, discussions, and developments from the fascinating field of carbon removal. In the meantime, if you'd like to find out more on today's topic, give feedback or get in touch, then please click or swipe on over to our website or other social media platforms, details of which can be found in the show notes. <laughs>